Let's take our Bibles and join me talking about one of those future days. We're headed to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as we mentioned already in the service, I'm changing just for this morning to a different topic that I just feel compelled that we should talk about. This week I had an opportunity, yesterday, day before yesterday, to have a sermon to share with a number of folk who are here for a funeral about heaven. I want to share a sermon with you this morning about something that I don't want to preach about, I don't want to talk about. It's very difficult to talk about. It isn't anything that we relish. But it's going to be an event that was just sung about. After Jesus comes, there's going to be a time when many will meet their doom. And we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about that from the book of Revelation. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of an incident that I shared with you about 22 years ago of an individual who was writing about a time when he got on the plane. And he was got on the plane in New York City, and he was headed for Melbourne, Florida. The plane trip would involve stopping at Tampa for just a brief period and then doing the rest of the 130-mile trip. On that plane, they, were, they knew that they were told that when they get to Tampa, there was going to be some who could disembark because that was their destination, and others may embark. But the people who were headed for Melbourne were told to just stay in your seat. So Brother Buckingham, who wrote about this, said we got to Tampa, and when we got there, all of a sudden they said, stay seated if you're going to Melbourne, but a number of people got up and started going. And he paid attention to a degree that a number of people were leaving, and then the stewardess came by, and he said, how long are we going to be here? And she says, just a few minutes until we get others on board. Well, others came on board, and they didn't leave, and they didn't leave. And they didn't leave. The stewardess came by and he says, I thought we were going to be leaving. He says, well, there's a little bit of a problem. We're missing a couple passengers. They're being paged inside the airport, but we're still waiting for them. And it was a longer time waiting, a longer time waiting. And then finally, two elderly women came on with their bags, all flustered, speaking as fast as they could in another language. And they headed for their seat and they plopped down, buckled up, and then the plane took off. Buckingham asked the stewardess exactly what happened. She giggled. She says, well, those two ladies that came on, they were from Italy. They had, they're coming to meet some relatives at Melbourne, Florida. And they had flown okay and got to New York City. They got on the right flight. But when they came to Tampa and they looked out the windows, they saw the palm trees and thought, we're here. Speaking no English, only Italian, they saw all the others get up and leave. So they got up and left with them not realizing they needed to stay seated. And then when they got out into the airport, they didn't find their relatives. They couldn't figure out where they were, and they were walking around, walking around, and they heard their names announced. And then finally, somebody from the airport came running up to them, and they didn't speak Italian, so they motioned to them, kept on pointing to the door, you know, that way, towards where they need to head down the right hallway. These ladies thought they were being kicked out of America. So they took off and went the other way. And it took the airport officials a little bit of time to find them hiding out in one of the restrooms. And finally, somebody who spoke Italian explained to them. They got on the plane. They were all flustered. They sat down. And they're going to be okay. I was thinking about that story and thinking about how many times so many people are like those two elderly ladies. They aren't sure of what's going on. They just kind of follow the crowd. And they could end up totally at the wrong destiny, totally in a mistaken place, alone, terrified. And the Bible talks about that mistaken place. What we've been doing in the last few weeks is we've been doing a series in Sunday school time in the adult Bible study, and we've been answering a number of questions that come up. And some of these topics that, that are very important topics 
Well, today I want to deal with a topic this morning. Do you really believe in the hell? It comes up frequently. And then it comes up, what is it really like? Because you don't want to get following the crowd and get off at the wrong place and end up in hell. None of us wants that. But you know, there's a lot of people who are confused about this idea of hell. There's a survey that came out just this last year. And they was asked in that survey, how many of you believe in heaven? Well, some 73% of individuals in America believe there's a heaven. The question went on to say, how many do you believe in a hell? And the, dra- the numbers dropped drastically. You know, it's interesting. Google reports that on an average day, 200 times a day, they get this question, is, have, is hell a real place? Well, I'm not sure you want to go to Google to figure out the answer. Okay. <laughs> I think we should go to the Bible. And let the Bible be our, our understanding and help us to, to get the, res- the real facts. And I believe in the Bible... Therefore, I believe that there's a hell. The reason I do that is because hell is quite frequently talked about in the Bible. In the New Testament alone, we have some number of passages that references to hell. A lot of them. Why is the Bible writing about some place that isn't real and a fairy tale if the Bible is accurate? I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe it's accurate. So the reason that it's talking so much about this hell is because it's a real place. Jesus Christ talked about it quite frequently too. When we take those 162 references, 70 of them were made by Jesus. Where Jesus talked about this hell, that he warned about this. He talks about it is better to end up maimed in this life than to end up in hell. He talks about this idea of hell multiple times, giving descriptions. We're going to refer to several of those passages that he talks about. Jesus Christ even told about one person and his experiences there. He's just called the rich man. But Jesus explains exactly what's happening to him. And the results of all this leads me to be absolutely confident, scared about, not wanting to talk about it, because it's a horrible place. But hell is real. And not only is it a real place, but if we want to describe what it's like, it's a really bad place, an awful place. It's a place that even though some people might hear right now or listening, they might say, well, when I get there, I'm going to have, it's not going to be what you think it is. It's going to be far worse than what you think. You're not going to have party. You're not going to have your six-pack. You're not going to be able to philander and fool around. Hell's a place of just terrible, terrible experiences. Far worse than what we can imagine. You know, I was thinking about that this week since we were preaching on heaven, where the Bible gives us all this information about heaven that talks about it's a place that God is building right now that are expanding right now for the idea of fellowshipping with all of us who would respond to his gospel. It's a place that is just absolutely great, grand, glorious. It's beyond our imaginations. You just mentioned, brother, that we can't even imagine how great heaven is. We can't. It's beyond description. Well, in the same way, hell is beyond what we can imagine. Why? We weren't designed to be there. It wasn't made for us. It was made by God Almighty as a place to confine and punish Satan for what he and his hordes have done. It is the most wicked, terrible, frightening place in all of creation. Men who choose to go there, and I say that distinctly, men choose to go there by refusing to listen to the word of God. Those who go there, it's going to be worse than your, than your wildest imagination can be. There's a passage that gives us a little glimpse of it. After Jesus Christ comes, the first time, the second time, then there's going to be this instant that's talked about. 
in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. He says, And the devil that deceived them that was, cast, was then cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no found no place for them. I saw the dead, the small, the great stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into this lake of fire. You know, there's days that are absolutely horrible. You have seen the news clip of when the Hindenburg exploded. And remember that, that reporter from Jersey who is describing, and he says, oh, how awful this is. Humanity, this is the worst day in all of history Seeing humanity perish. We, we know of other days that have left an impression upon our minds. Some of us recall seeing the pictures, hearing the stories of what it was like when people entered into Auschwitz and these other centers where people were absolutely tortured, killed. We have heard about the Bataan Death March that many of our troops went through. We have heard about how the Indianapolis was torpedoed and sunk. And so many of the men died, not because of the, the damage to the ship, but because of the sharks that attacked them. We hear of these accounts, and some of us remember the merry morning that the president was shot. Some of us remember those awful times when on the news we heard that the astronauts were all lost as they exploded. Some of us, many of us, remember this awful day. But none of those days is as awful as the day described in Revelation 20. The day when God will judge mankind. The day that God will all of a sudden pronounce sentence on many people. And he will say, you have chosen to go to hell. And they will end up there. That will be the worst day in human history. To see loved ones, friends, family being condemned forever and ever. That hell that he's talking about in this text, it's the eternal hell. Hell, just to give you a description, is simply this. Hell is a place where you are separated from God forever and ever and ever. Separated from all of his blessings. Even if somebody is alive today and does not take time to think about, to thank God in any way, shape, or form, doesn't bother with worship, doesn't bother with any thoughts of God, they still experience the blessings of God like nature, breath, water, food. God is a generous God. But that day when God puts people in this eternal hell, they will be separated from all of God's little gifts, big gifts. They will be forever experiencing his wrath, that is, his punishment for the sins that they have done. This passage describes that this hell is a place of torments. The reason I say that is you look at the text in verse 10, it talks about a lake, an expanse of fire and brimstone. 
It talks about torment day and night forever and ever. It talks about a lake of fire further in the text. It mentions the same thing again, a lake of fire. It is a place of pain and agony and torment. And on top of it, to put it in its perspective, at the moment that this text is describing, the people who have yet to have been resurrected, they, the remainder of all of humanity who has not been resurrected before, their bodies will be resurrected in Revelation 20, this text. Their physical body will be reunited with their soul. So that their physical body will be the type of body that we call a resurrection that will never, ever die again. It will perpetually experience its surroundings. Can you imagine having your body that will not be consumed by flames, but experience all of it and all the agony of it? That's what's going to happen to those individuals. Jesus Christ described it. Many different ways. He talked about being in danger of the hellfire. He talked about being outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talked about a place that is a furnace of fire. There should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus further said that there is a place where you cast in, you'll be outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. There again, he says the weeping and gnashing of teeth where he talks about the worm dying not. Why did Jesus mention it so many times? He didn't want anybody going there. He is using terms to get you and me our attention to say this isn't a fun place. This isn't an enjoyable place. This is a horrible place. In Luke 16, he opens up, not literally, physically, but he opens up for people in, a, in an ex- explanation of what hell is like. And he describes one of the men who has gone down into this region. His name is Rich Man. And he says that this rich man, after he died, he opened up his eyes. Being in torments, he cries, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip his finger, just one drop of his finger that in the water that may cool my tongue because I am constantly tormented in this flame. Jesus is very clearly telling us it's a place of painful torments. It's a place of permanent imprisonment. You think that my messages last long. Think of sitting in hell forever and ever. There's going to be no end to it. It's going to be an awful place. Now, I know some people, they'll teach that there's a purgatory. They'll teach that there's a second chance. I grew up in a church that told us that what we will do is when we die, we go to purgatory. We'll be in this purgatory for a period of time, and it'll be like a mini hell. But it's not permanent. It's a mini hell where you will burn, you will suffer, and therefore you will then suffer enough for every one of your sins. And when all of your sins are suffered enough, you will get out of there and eventually go to heaven. Or others can help you by helping to pay monies to get your sins forgiven and you can get out of purgatory quicker. And as a result, our family, like many others, we paid monies because we wanted our grandparents out of purgatory. Not to suffer, but to get to heaven quicker. Well, the Bible never teaches a purgatory. There is never a mention of that. The Bible doesn't teach that there's going to be a second chance, that those people who end up in hell are going to be given a chance where they can say after they've suffered for a hundred years, a thousand years, they aren't going to be brought back before God and God says, okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Where do you want to go, heaven or hell? It doesn't work that way. It's not like our legal system. That you're only punished for a short period of time. This is a permanent place. 
This is a place that Jesus and others have described, like in Revelation 20, says day and night forever and ever. In, in fact, the Lord taking his words once again in the Gospels, unquenchable fire where it shall never be quenched, everlasting punishment, everlasting fire, where he describes, where he says everlasting destruction, where he describes that there is torment out of coming out of hell, the smoke and the torments forever and ever, no rest, no peace, no reprieve, day or night. The rich man in hell. He calls out, he says, please send Lazarus to me. Let him dip his finger and give me some relief. And the response is this. He is comforted, but you are tormented. And besides all this, between, there's this great gulf. Those who would pass from one side to the other, whether from your place to here or this place to you, they can't. It's a permanent imprisonment. There's no escape from it. There is no opportunity to get out. Jesus Christ, in Matthew 25, I want you to catch this phrase. He says, these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There are some people who will say, well, hell only is a short time. It'll, it'll burn itself out. It won't keep on going. Well, if you believe that, then you believe heaven is only a short time too. You see, Jesus used the same word for everlasting punishment, Life eternal. It's the exact same word giving the description of life and punishment. So what he's getting across to those who are listening to him and to us who read those words is this thought that hell is as everlasting as heaven is. I don't like preaching this. I love preaching about heaven. I love telling people how real it is, how wonderful it is, and we're going to be there forever. I love to do that. I do not enjoy this one bit. There is nothing exciting about this thought of telling and sharing the word of God that hell is real and really awful. It is a fact, though. It is necessary that we remember we get motivated. We, we recall this is what God saved us from. A place that is forever, ever with no escape, no reprieve, no second chances, without end, no hope of a rescue. Do you remember the story I told you about a year and a half ago? Of a gentleman in Barrington in Chicago. He was doing jail ministries. And as he was doing jail ministries, he passed this one cell where a young man had his head on his, in his uh, hands. And he says, oh, oh my, oh my, oh my. So he stopped there. As a chaplain, he wanted to encourage. And so he asked the young man, he says, what's wrong? He said, they're transferring me tomorrow. They're sending me to the Joliet prison. I'll be there for seven years Seven years. That's a lifetime. Seven years. Seven years seems like a long time in jail. Can you imagine what forever is like? It's a horrible place. It's a place with painful torments, permanent imprisonment, but also it's a place filled with condemned sinners, guilty sinners. You see, the text makes it very clear in this passage. It talks about three people already there. 
before the judgment starts. Satan is put there. Antichrist is there. False prophet. We all agree they deserve to be there. They're bad. No doubt about that. But the passage goes on and says, other people will end up there. Others who are bad, done bad, different degrees of bad, but who have violated God's word. In fact, this text pictures us in a courtroom scene. And in this courtroom scene, God is the judge. His sitting on the throne, everything, everyone, they're, they're, they're amazed by his greatness. Standing before God. And the people who are brought back from the dead are given their resurrection bodies and they stand before God. And as they stand before him, there's going to take place judgment of every man. Did you catch that? Every man, every person. He's making it very clear that what's going to happen is every man is going to be judged personally. One-on-one with God. That means that no matter how long they've been dead... That means no matter how they died, it won't get them out of this judgment. It it means no matter what they did in this life, what they possessed in this life, they're not going to buy their way out of this judgment. They're going to have to stand one-on-one before God. And as they stand before God, it's clear that no one is going to avoid this. They aren't going to be able to get into the crowd and hide inside this big group of people so that God doesn't see them. God will see him. He'll call their name. If it's you, he'll call your name. You aren't going to be able to hide behind parents, spouse, church, kids, your American citizenship. You're gladly paying your taxes. (laughs) That's not going to count. You're going to stand there, bare of everything, just you and God, and God's going to judge you. If you're at this judgment, he's going to judge you. No way of escaping, no way of avoiding, no way of saying, well, who are you? When you stand before God, everybody just, they are overwhelmed by God's greatness. And what happens is God begins the judgment. And everyone is judged, and what he does, he opens up books. Books that record works. And he starts judging out of these books, out of these works that are mentioned in this text. And what's recorded in this, these books are the works that the people who are being judged have done. And, and it, it's a very thorough recording. We read in other scriptures that some of the things that are recorded are the words that were spoken. That God is keeping a record of this. That every idle word, they're going to give an account Could you imagine if you were to stand at this judgment having to give account for the things you've said? Did you ever use the Lord's name in vain? Did you ever lie? Did you ever slander somebody? Did you ever gossip? Did you ever blow your top and say some things about somebody else or to somebody that was harsh? All the idle words... Everything is recorded and brought up. Would you cower if your words were on display this morning? He he goes a little bit further. He says, not only your words, the thoughts. I want no one to know some of the thoughts I've had. 
There are some thoughts I am so, so very ashamed of. Thoughts that come up in my dreams. And I wake up and go, what in the world? I had that in my mind? But he says, I'm going to bring out the secrets of the heart. In this judgment, God is going to have recorded everything that was done. He says, every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil, then he shall reward every man according to his works. What you did, how you worked, how you didn't work, how you treated other people, how you you conducted your financial affairs, how you filled out your tax forms, how how you filed claims for the insurances. Any dishonesty? There it is. How, how, how you did things for your family or didn't do things. This is a thorough, thorough examination that it says the things that are done in secret. That nobody knows about. That nobody that you think nobody sees, nobody knows what you have done in private. What you have looked on in private. What you have put aside and kept or taken from work or not reported. Everything's there. The expose that God is going to use is just absolutely stunning. It is just incredible. And the result is going to be that all of a sudden, the standard by which these books are open and compared to, it's not what we think. It's not what we determine is right and wrong. The standard is going to be, what does God determine is right and wrong? Now, taking God's standard and evaluating, comparing the works that were done by what God has said. Where God has said, be holy as I am holy. When God has said, that let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth. What God has said, as far as husband-wife relationship. What God has said about obeying parents. Not what we think. Not what our culture thinks, but what God says. That's the standard by which all of a sudden these things are being compared. And then what happens? The passage says there's many of those people there are going to suffer the second death. That word, that phrase is used to describe what types of things, people, will experience the second death. And if you go over to the next chapter and look at verse 8, it talks about the second death. And it describes some of the activity by which people will be found guilty of doing certain things. And he says, they shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the second half of the verse. The first half of the verse says, here's what I'm going to find people guilty of. I'm going to find people guilty of being fearful. Not having a backbone to stand for God. I'm going to find people of not trusting me, not believing in me, not relying upon me, not following me. I'm going to find people who are abominable. That's not a snowman. What that is, is people who are addicted to a sin. Now, we talk about addictions that are very public, whether it be liquor or drugs. There's a lot of addiction, according to the Word of God, like lust. And greed. And he says, I'm going to find people dominated by that. I'm going to find murderers. 
I'm going to find people who are whoremongers. It's a broad word, just sexually immoral. You name it, whatever the sexual sin is, it's under this category. Where they have violated the idea of sexual relationships for married couples only after they're married. He goes on, he says, I'll find sorcerers. It could be people using drugs, people in the occult, or both. It has both connotations. It could be the idea of idolaters. Well, we know what idolaters are. People bowing down to statues. But do you remember what Colossians tells us? So is covetousness. It is the sin of idolatry. Whoa, for we Americans, got to be careful of covetousness. The idea of all liars. My friend, who does that include? You look at that and you go, um, I know at least one category where I'm at. That bottom one, I lied. I lied when I was confessing sins. I was taught that we need to go and tell the priest how often we sinned. I didn't know. I just made up numbers. Guilty. He goes a little bit further. And he says, okay, I'm talking about these things. Now remember, the wages of sin is death. And what is death? Separation. The same as hell. Separation from God's blessings. Eternal death is separation from God. And he gives us another passage in the book of Romans that is really interesting. You want to to flip there for just a second? The book of Romans. He's describing in Romans chapter 1. Some of you have already been through this. I would assume you've already in Sunday school passed this section. But in Romans chapter 1, he's talking about the idea of judgment. I want you to just go down to the end of the chapter, Romans 1. And he says, after describing people, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of what? Worthy of death. Not only do the same things, but they have pleasure in them. In other words, people know better. But they continue to do certain things. Well, let's back up. And let's see what are some of those certain things. Let's just pick up into verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to the reprobate mind, to those things which are not convenient. In other words, they don't want to think about God. They don't want to care about God. They do things that are inappropriate. They know better, but they still do them. They're guilty. They're declared guilty, worthy of death, of hell. Filled with unrighteousness. He goes on, he says, they're guilty of fornication. Again, broad term. Any sexual impropriety. They're filled with wickedness. They're covetous. He says they're malicious. They've been hateful. Hateful for, towards a family member. Towards a co-worker. Towards a political leader. Hateful. Full of envy. He goes on, they're committed, they may have committed murder. They may have just been guilty of argumenting, or arguing a lot. Good thing nobody here does that. Good thing we are all cooperative and never have to argue a point. But he says the people who are going to be condemned are people at times they've deceived, or they've been angry, or they're gossipers, or they're backbiters. They're guilty of slandering somebody. They're guilty of hating God or they're guilty of being despiteful or proud or boasters or inventor of evil things. They may be guilty of some of them disobeying their parents. So me, like probably all of you, we go, whoops. Just like liars in the one verse, 
disobeying the parents, that's a sin worthy of condemnation. It violated even what we know as the basic Ten Commandments. He goes on, he says, covenant breakers. In other words, you made, gave your word, but you didn't keep it. Without natural affection means you don't have family loyalties. The idea of implacable is you're ruthless, or the idea you've not shown mercy to others. These are the peoples. They, don't, they may not have done all of them, but if they've done one of them, the wages of sin is death. So God says, okay, you've broken my laws. You violated my standards. And God is not going to make a mistake. We hear about it. We know about it. We've got the stories of people who were found guilty, but they weren't. Not in this courtroom. Because God has records. And he's bringing them out and he's going to lay them out there. It says, you, this is what you said. This is what you did. This is how you thought. And therefore you're guilty of some of these things or a lot of these things or a couple of these things but you're guilty and so what he's going to do is we were reminded there's the wages of sin of just one of those sins therefore we have come short of the standard of God if I were still going to be held accountable for all my thoughts my words my deeds that I have done even though there may be some good stuff there's there's going to be a whole lot of bad that would be in those books and I would have fallen short of God's standard of perfection and if I were still facing this type of thing in the future this courtroom there is no doubt in my mind God would have to declare me guilty because I am I've come short of the standard of God and you want to know something so have you God said for how many have sinned he's gone on he says how many are righteous none not one so we look at this and go oh man this place is going to be filled with guilty people and I'm guilty but it's a place that can be avoided. You see it in the last verse of verse 20, of chapter 20 of Revelation, where he makes the comment, he says, if your name is in the book of life, well, actually, if your name is not written in the book of life, you're going to be cast in the lake of fire, which means that if your name is in the book of life, you will not be cast into this lake of fire of second death. The hope, the help that this passage talks about is saying, get your name in the book of life. Get your name in the book of life. What's that mean? That whole idea, as in courts today, courts today, if you're fined, some, somebody else could pay your penalty. Somebody else could get in your stead. Somebody else could take your place. Pay your fine. Well, God in this courtroom says, I have made it possible that somebody would be willing to take your place and suffer your condemnation, your separation from me. That somebody is Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We, we go further in scriptures where it says in John chapter 3. Do you remember this passage? What's it start off with? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he goes on, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten son. He's condemned. Friend, have you believed? Then you're not condemned. Your name is in the book of life. You have gotten God's forgiveness. You will not be declared guilty because it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen is right. Amen is absolutely right. Do you realize what Jesus said to the disciples when they went out and they cast out demons and they had a wonderful day of ministry and it was so fun and they came back to Jesus and Jesus says, don't rejoice that you can do all these things but rejoice over this one fact. That your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why our worship should be emotional. Enthusiastic. Because we've been forgiven and we will not stand at that judgment day. We will already be enjoying the glories of heaven. If you've believed on Jesus Christ. If you've come to a point that you realize that he gave his life on the cross to take your penalty that you deserved. He suffered everything written about your words, your thoughts, your deeds. He suffered that equal punishment. And there he is, making intercession. The author writes about a time that his three or four-year-old daughter came to him, and she was a little bit sheepish, she confessed to daddy that she had gotten into daddy's little box on his dresser and she took out a ring from daddy's little box. This was the ring that the man got from his father on his father's deathbed. It meant a lot to him. The little girl wanted to know if it would flush down the toilet. So she experimented. She dropped it in the toilet. She pulled down the handle to see if it would flush away. Guess what? It worked. She was successful in her experiment. But now she was telling daddy, I lost your ring. Can you get it back? Daddy was not happy. He writes, he says, I was extremely upset. She lost my my dad's token to me. She knew she wasn't supposed to be in that box. So he said, I corrected her. And then I was still angry. I didn't talk to her for supper time. I didn't put her to bed that night. I was still upset. In fact, the next morning I got up. I didn't talk to her at breakfast time. I went into my office that I had at home and I started studying. And after a while, there was a knock at the door. When I opened the door, there was her big brother who was two years older. Big brother was standing there and behind him was the little girl. (laughs) And the little girl just kind of peeked around sheepishly and big brother said, Daddy, we know that Sally here lost grandpa's ring and she feels really, really bad about it. So I went and helped her make a new ring out of the pine needles from our pine tree. Daddy, would you please take this ring to be the new ring and forgive her and talk to her once again? Dad, what do you think you'd do? Yeah, guess which ring became more precious? The little brother interceded for the sister. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ said, 
I make forgiveness here. Father, would you take forgiveness and would you let Wayne come into heaven? Would you let Tom come into heaven? Would you let Mary come into heaven? Would you let Tina come into heaven? Put your name there. That's what Christ has done for you. Jesus Christ says, I will give that forgiveness, but, all, but you have to. You have to believe. You have to call upon him. This gift means nothing. It means nothing if you refuse it. You know, out of history, this has happened more than once, but it's on this Supreme Court case where a gentleman robbed the post office and threatened a postal carrier years ago, George Wilson. And when his case came up, they found him guilty. There was going to be an execution. But the president was asked to give a pardon because of certain circumstances. The president offered a pardon. The man would not be executed. But the man said, I don't want the pardon. I refuse it. The Supreme Court ruled at that time, and it has been kept in rulings time and time again, that you cannot force a pardon on somebody who refuses to take it. Even though it is there, it isn't legally in place until it's taken, accepted. Jesus has forgiveness for you, so you don't have to have this judgment take place. So you don't have to have the threat of being in hell. He's got it there, but you've got to call upon him. You have got to ask him to be your savior. You have to admit that you're a sinner. That you don't deserve to get into heaven by good looks, good works, good deeds. God knows better. You have to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you from hell. Not a church, not your works, not doing some good social, but it's Jesus. You have to personally ask him, call upon him to forgive you. No matter what, no matter what your age, no matter what your background, you need to pray and call upon Christ. For me personally, I've shared with you at, at times, I was 16 years old. I had no idea of going to heaven other than it was what the church taught. I knew I didn't want to go to hell. But my mom was really devout. So I was sure I was going to get to heaven because my mom was devout. But when I was 16 years old, a lot of things happened in my life. Even though I was involved with drinking and all kinds of garbage stuff, all of a sudden, God started working in my life. And he brought me down several notches and started humbling me with things that, that I was really proud of with school and, and the politics that I was involved in with school and the state. And all of a sudden, it was like, huh. And I felt very vulnerable. And my parents had just gotten saved the month or two before because a preacher stopped at our place and shared the gospel with my dad, who rejected it at first but told the preacher to go talk to the lady at the house next door, who was my mom. Why would he do that? And my mom, through January 3rd of 73, through a frozen Minnesota screen door, heard the gospel for like 45 minutes, wouldn't open it because he was a non-Catholic, but she accepted the tracts. She read them and read them and read them, and she finally got saved. And then she shared it with my dad, and then she started sharing with us. But it wasn't until May 15th. 73, 
that I asked mom to call Pastor Kittle, have him come over and show me from the Bible what I needed to do. I sat there at the kitchen table listening to Pastor Kittle share this news, share that I was a sinner, that I deserved to go to hell. He asked me if I would accept God's free gift of salvation. I thought to myself, you have to be an idiot not to. I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Savior. I had a bad background, but Jesus forgave me. Tony? Uh, If I was to joke and say that I had a bad background... (laughs) You'd be in trouble. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) I had a different background. Because of my dad's salvation, I grew up going to church on a regular basis. At the time when I was young, 35 plus years ago, our church was not this one. It was a different church. And I was a young child, four or five years old, something like that. My parents had taken the opportunity several times to share with me what Jesus had done for me and why this gift was so important and why it was something that I could accept and make my own. And I remember sitting up front at the church, kind of up here, for a communion service. And like many kids, if there's food present, you're hungry, right? And so as the food in my mind was being passed out, I said to my mom in a childlike whisper, can I please have some? I'm really hungry. She looked at me and said, no, Tony, you know what this is for. We've talked about it. And she continued to explain to me what the communion service was about and what it is we're remembering and why this is important. And as best as I could understand at the time, I understood what she was talking about, but I was still hungry. So I kept asking and she said, no, we need to go somewhere else and talk. I remember that the church we were at at the time, uh, we were renting a portion of a building, and I knew that the hallway that my mom was walking me toward off of the auditorium area included the office of a dentist who thought it would be funny if when people walked in the door, they saw a full-size skeleton just hanging there. I don't know what he wanted them to think would happen if he did dental work, but I remember walking down that hallway thinking, I don't want to go down near that dentist's office. There's that skeleton down there. But we sat in my dad's office, My mom continued to talk to me. My dad came after the service. And they again talked about salvation. And they said, Tony, is this something that you want to choose to accept right now? And I said, no, I'm not interested anymore. Let's just go home. The next morning, I clearly remember what my room looked like. I clearly remember the lamp that was sitting next to me. And I remember waking up and thinking, as best I understood, I should pray to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. So like many kids, I took the blankets and I threw them over my head. So I was in a little private tent. I don't remember what I said, but I can remember closing my eyes with my pillow in front of me and in my way asking Jesus to forgive me for being a sinner and granting to me that eternal life. And as a kid, I was so excited to share with my parents what I had done. I ran down the stairs. I see my mom and dad in the living room. If I remember right, you were ironing. And I said, you'll never believe what I just did. (laughs) And so I shared with them as best I could as a child. Here's what I did. Can I call all of my friends and tell them? I had one friend at the time. But we called him. I remember sharing with him what I had done. And like many people, as I grew up, I understood better the choice I made. I know I was saved that day because my faith, as best as I could as a child, was placed in Jesus Christ and what he had done for me. Sure, I could explain it a lot better now. But as a child, I knew, now I'm on my way to heaven. And then I grew up, got married, and I had a child. You want to come up here? 
You want to stand or you want to sit down? Yeah, let's sit down. How's that sound? Go ahead and sit right there, buddy. Why don't you hold it? Yeah, right there is good. This is Preston, my son. Preston, how old are you right now? I am 11 years old. Yeah, you're 11. Do you remember how old you were when you got saved? Five or six. Five or six, right? Let me ask you a question. Do we have to remember exactly what we said and how old we were in order to stay saved? Nope. No. Do you remember um, if we ever talked about salvation before when you were younger? Not really. Don't remember. That's okay. You don't remember the words. But did you hear about Jesus and him dying on the cross? Yes. Okay. Who was with you when you got saved? Papa, Grandma, and Eden. You're right. Now, do you remember where you were when you got saved? Burger King. You're at Burger King, right? So I had the story relayed to me, and I'm sure I could tell it, but let me see if we can help everybody else hear your version of the story. Do you remember what you ordered for food that day? Probably a burger and fries. A burger and fries, right? And often, like we do, what did you do before you started to eat? Pray. Yeah, and... Did you choose to pray, or did somebody ask you to pray for the food? can't really remember exactly what happened. But do you remember about the prayer, kind of what happened when you were praying? Yes. Why don't you tell everybody what happened? Well, I just thought at the time that it was a good time that I could get saved, so I just asked Jesus to come into my heart. Yeah. When you say, ask Jesus to come into your heart, that's a phrase we use so often. What is it that you asked him to do for you when he came in your heart? Come and live inside my heart. Yeah. With the Holy Spirit and take away all my sins. Yeah. Because what did Jesus do to show that he could take away your sins? He died on the cross and suffered all our sins. Yeah, he suffered for that punishment so that we wouldn't have to. Preston, are you sure that you're going to go to heaven one day? Yes. Does that mean we'll get to hang out in heaven too? Yes. Will Grandpa be there? Yes. And his mom and dad who aren't here on earth anymore, are they going to be there too? Yes. 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 <laughs> Why don't we go have a seat, buddy? Doesn't make any difference how old you are. Doesn't even make any difference where you're at. God hears at Burger King. But you need to get saved. You need to call upon Christ. We want to give you that chance. We're going to have staff head some at that back door and some over there. And when we close in this song that we're going to sing, if you would like to go and talk with somebody and then go aside privately and find out to pray what you need to pray to make sure you're going to heaven, why don't you do that while we sing this song? Please, don't leave without calling upon Christ. Let me close with this before we sing. If you're born again, keep on your playing, it's fine. If you're born again, the greatest, absolute, the greatest thing you can know is that you're going to heaven. That Jesus has given you the gift of eternal life. That makes everything pale in comparison to know you're going to be in heaven one day. And it's by God's grace. By God's grace. And aren't you glad you came just as you are and asked Christ? Let's sing. In worship to the Lord, just as I am. Just as I am, out one plea, 
blood that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I come your heads are bowed your eyes are closed and you're praying you're praying for anyone here who has yet to respond if you'd be so kind as to stand so if somebody's sitting there they can get past you easily let's just stand in prayer and you're here this morning you come to this church regularly this may be your first time you haven't you have yet to call upon Christ you do not know for sure right now right now go talk with somebody go to the back door go over to the side door talk with somebody find out for sure what you need to do to be saved to avoid this damnation this hell this horrible future won't you go right now go talk with somebody right now please please we want to see you in heaven make sure make sure this day please please Father, you know my struggles this week in preaching this message. I don't want to do it. How I thought about even changing this morning at the last minute. But God, I think you wanted this for somebody here. Maybe for a couple people here. God, I pray. There's some here who do not know. Please help their friend, their family to reach out. Help them to respond and accept Christ as Savior. And for those of us who have responded and asked Christ to be our Savior, whether it be decades ago or just recently, thank you. Thank you for saving our souls and forgiving us of our sins. We know we didn't deserve it, but we say together this morning, thank you. We love you for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen.